Well, good morning. Welcome, brothers and sisters. Let us stand together and hear from God's word. From Psalm 135, it calls us to worship this morning. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Each and every Sunday, we have the opportunity to remember that we are not our own, but we belong to God. So even in our singing, we are reminded that we were chosen for this, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. We gather as servants of the Lord, as Psalm 135 says, as the house of the Lord, as living stones built together for his presence. And we gather to praise the name of the Lord our God. So let us join together and do what we were made to do. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious song, sung by claiming times above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of Sing of his love. Hitherto thy love has blessed me. You have brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus on me when a stranger wandering from. To leave the God 
Christ the Lord is risen today. Christ the Lord is risen indeed. Amen. That is such great, great news. I know we say that on Easter, but do you know we could say that every Sunday through the whole year? That's the reason we worship and gather on Sundays. It's because of his resurrection. Now, with that said, I actually can't wait uh, for Easter weekend two weeks from now. Do you realize it's been two years since we've gathered to celebrate the resurrection on Easter face-to-face, in person. Uh, So with that said, uh, we have opened up registration for those services this morning. So when you head home, go ahead and register. That means Good Friday at 6.30 p.m. And then our usual times, 9 and 11 o'clock on Sunday, but also an added 7.15 a.m. time. And as always, we're encouraging our members and regular attenders, if at all possible, please sign up for that early service at 7.15 And the reason is that'll make room for dozens of visitors that will want to come at 9 or 11, many of whom will not be Christians. So help us out with that if you can. If you're on our email list, which is not just members, but anybody who wants to be on it, uh, you'll kind of know because you get my email every Tuesday once a week, and then once a month you'll get our email newsletter. Uh, If you're on that list, we've got a special treat for you starting this Wednesday, uh, daily email that'll run for 12 days up to Easter. If you're not on that list and you'd like to be, we'd love to have you on the list. Please email us at info at dscabq.com. In fact, if you're a first-time visitor in the service here or by our streamed service, uh, and maybe you don't want to get on weekly or even daily emails at all, but you just want to reach out and, and ask a question, Use the same email address, info at dscabq.com. We'd love to answer you and start a dialogue with you. Finally, remember this Wednesday is our Lord's Supper service. We've got five Wednesdays in March, so I'm actually unsure whether it's the fourth or the final one. It's the fourth. It's coming up in three days. Um, If you didn't see the email newsletter at the beginning of this month, or I think I've had it on the slide for a few weeks now, uh, there's still room to register. So if you want to come three days from now, go home. Sign up both for Easter and Lord's Supper this Wednesday. I think there are like 60 or 70 seats left. So go ahead and do both of those today uh, before the day gets too far on. Please pray with me now. Let's pray for our service. Father, help us to rejoice, to give thanks, to sing, to respond to your word. Help us to sing two weeks from now These words, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. So, Father, help us in this service when we turn to your word in more detail later to see what you say through your servant Paul about the relation of the gospel 
and good works. Give us a heart now to praise you and trust you this morning and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Often we don't praise and trust as we should, so let us stand together and confess our sin. Won't you say this with me? Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Now let us remember that it is God's love and kindness that leads us to repentance. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus, lover of my soul, led me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me.
your voice, sing of his grace. Plenteous grace with me is found, grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound, make and keep me. of love divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side where sinners stray their filthy rags for his righteousness apply mercy cleansing every stain now rushing o'er us like a flood there the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood. O mount of grace, to thee we cling from the
So you can be seated. Amen. Praise the Lamb who defeated the curse of sin and death. Uh, please join me and let's pray for our uh, Navajo church partners in Navajo Nation. God, glory belongs to you and to you alone. We cannot praise you too much. We cannot sing too many praises or use words too strong as they will all fail to express your true wonder. That is why we desire to multiply our songs. We desire that you receive praise not just from our local church. We desire that you receive a chorus of praise from multitudes. And within those multitudes, we ask that you fulfill your promises, that you save from all peoples of this earth. And this morning, we want to specifically pray that you would receive your due praise from the Navajo. We thank you for graciously saving and continuing to grow the people of Cedar Hill Church and Good News Church. We thank you for giving them pastors who love you and love your bride, the church. We thank you for the lay leaders who are imitating Christ as they serve their congregation, like Efren Butler, who helps her father with deliveries of wood, clothing, and food. God, we pray for good health for Pastor Tuli Butler. We pray that you would provide him a man to help him in his ministry, who can also preach and teach, and may someday take over the pastor at a Cedar Hill. Today, uh, we bring before you a concern that was voiced by both churches. The issue that the men and the churches are not serving, they're not sharing the gospel, and it doesn't seem that they're loving the church. Lord, we pray that you would convict those who are in sin and comfort them with your grace. We pray that these men would begin leading their families spiritually Help these men be husbands that cherish and love their wives as Christ loves the church. Encourage them through your word to disciple their children. May they teach their children your word as they sit at their meals and as they go through their days. Lord, call and build up Navajo pastors who will boldly preach your word to their communities and people groups across the globe. God, we also thank you for Lee Scott, who leads our woodcutting ministry, and all of our members who make the ministry a sweet aroma to you and to the Navajo communities we serve. We thank you for the opportunity we had to bring food to the res last year when they needed help. We praise you for using that ministry to provide gospel conversations, which at least resulted in one person putting their trust in you and is now involved in their local church. Father, we also thank you for our partnership with Across Nations and our missionaries Chuck and Cindy Harper. We thank you for their faithful witness at Across Nations over the many years to the Navajo. We pray that you would continue to expand their ministry of training Navajo pastors. Help them be a model of Christ-exalting, gospel-centered preaching and teaching. Lord, it is the desire of across nations for them to become a culture of disciple-making. And Lord, we know this is also something that you desire for them. So please help them to make disciples and train up disciple-makers. 
God, we thank you for all these ministries. Thank you for Cedar Hill, Good News Church, our woodcutting ministry, and across nations. Help these ministries continue to be a part of your work of spreading your praise across Navajo Nation. For you deserve unlimited praises. Lord, grow your Navajo church for your glory and for the good of the Navajo Nation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song as we sing for the Holy Spirit's help.
Yes, Father, we pray you would show us Christ, show us more of our Savior, show us more of his grace and glory. With unveiled faces we behold his glory and we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray for that today. And we pray for those with us who haven't yet had that veil removed from their sight and haven't yet seen Christ savingly. Perhaps today, Lord, you would reveal Christ. Show them Christ for their saving good, for their eternal good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You could be seated. Well, we're in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, as we continue our study of this book. I encourage you to open your Bible to Galatians 2, or if you have it on your device and want to turn there, or if you'd rather, you can follow along on the screens to the sides here as I read Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Follow along. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though private before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, they asked, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When we come to some parts of the Bible, it can feel at times like we're reading someone else's mail. Of course, with the epistles in the New Testament, that is indeed precisely what we have, someone else's mail. It's the Apostle Paul or someone else writing a specific letter, a personal letter, to a specific church or an individual. And there are specific issues and concerns, problems on the ground that need addressing. And the letter is about those things. But there are some sections within the epistles that, in particular, they seem especially tied to an immediate place and time, occasion and circumstances, and hence some of those sections seem more relevant, apparently, for the first readers and less relevant to us 2,000 years later. And that's certainly the case with our passage today. 
It's an autobiographical recounting of one of Paul's visits to Jerusalem, where he summarizes a few conversations, and he seems to explain, though we don't think we would really need this information, but he seems to explain that the apostles agreed with each other and supported each other. The only bit of controversy in the passage is over circumcision of all things. Again, it can feel like reading someone else's mail. Of course, we know as Christians that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by Him. So it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. That's true of our passage. That's true of every passage. It's true of hard passages. It's true of genealogies and the hardest mysteries of Revelation. But I want to see that our passage is not just inspired, but also inspiring. I want us to see this morning that our passage is actually very relevant, very important, very needed for us today. Yes, it is rooted in a historic conversation, historic controversies. And these things take some time to understand in their historical and biblical theological contexts. But once we give the passage the time that it deserves to consider these things and learn some new things, remember some old things, I think we'll see just how important and how relevant this passage is. In short, Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Like so much of Galatians, if not all of Galatians, it's about the gospel. Our passage teaches us about the unity around the gospel. It shows us the importance for the clarity and the purity of the gospel. It celebrates partnerships in the gospel. And it demonstrates the implications of the gospel. That is how to live in light of it. It's all about the gospel, which reminds me of that saying that's sometimes used around politics. It's the economy, stupid. Remember that? I think it was James Carville who first said it. Well, I think if we happen to catch Paul on a bad day, a grumpy day, and I assume he had those, and we asked him, maybe in a snarky way, maybe a skeptical sort of way. Paul, what is this bit in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, all about anyway? I think grumpy Paul might say, it's the gospel, stupid. (laughs) Or maybe he wouldn't, I don't know. Regardless, let's break down our passage into four sections, four headings, all related to the gospel. And the first two will take the majority of our time because so much... Again, historical, biblical, theological context needs to get established in these first two points, and then it's assumed for points three and four. The first is gospel unity sought. Gospel unity is sought by Paul in verses one and two. But first, remember what he said in chapter one, which we saw last week. Remember that he didn't get his gospel from someone else. He didn't make it up. He didn't inherit it. He doesn't have a man-made gospel. Instead, he got it directly from the risen Lord Jesus. So he doesn't need to consult with anyone about what happened to him on the road to Damascus and what it means. 
He didn't even go check in with the apostolic leaders in Jerusalem after he was converted. He did eventually, three years later, finally sit down with Peter for a bit, but this was just a short time. Well, now in chapter 2, he continues autobiographical details which further validate his gospel message, but do so from another angle with a, a different approach. He says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. This is possibly 14 years after his conversion or 14 years since he was last with Peter for those two weeks. It matters little which one. And this time he went up to Jerusalem because, he says, verse 2, because of a revelation. Details of this revelation aren't given. But this kind of thing happens from time to time in the book of Acts where God gives a special, miraculous word to one of his emissaries to direct their paths or to protect them from trouble. And here, Paul says, just in passing, that God had directed him to go to Jerusalem, which a takeaway for us means that he wasn't summoned by the 12 apostles in Jerusalem in some sort of top-down manner. He wasn't summoned by them. He didn't show up because they called him. God sent him there. And neither did Paul go to Jerusalem because of some growing uncertainty about his message or his mission. He was clear about all that. That was already established in chapter 1. He says he went because of a revelation. And notice verse 2 still. He says to set before those influential leaders in Jerusalem the 12 apostles, to set before them his gospel message, the gospel that I proclaim, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, what does he mean by that? That can sound a little bit like he actually is saying, I went to Jerusalem to get my message confirmed, ratified. I, I went to Jerusalem to, to make sure it was right that I wasn't wasting my time. Well, he wasn't quite saying that. We should give Paul the benefit of the doubt that he's not saying something here that is completely contradictory to his whole point in chapter 1. No, he didn't go to Jerusalem to get his message confirmed or certified or ratified. He went to Jerusalem, though, to make certain and explicit and undeniable that all the apostles are preaching the same gospel. They have the same message. They are in agreement. What's at stake, what's of concern, is that there could hypothetically be disunity in the gospel, in the church. There could be some who believe one gospel, others with another. And if there was disunity about gospel content, then Paul's ministry would have been disadvantaged. It's in that sense that he says some of his work might have been in vain. Hypothetically speaking, if there was disagreement on the gospel, his work might have been in vain. Not in vain totally. He's not saying that. This is the guy who would later write 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Paul's not saying it could be in vain because he's giving out the wrong message. No, but 
potentially and partially his labors would be in vain because there would be some who have an excuse to not believe his message. Some who have reason to doubt. Some who have heard this is one version of the story, one gospel going around. And Paul's enemies would have further ammo and credibility in their claim that Paul's message isn't authentic. He made it up. It's inconsistent with the other apostles. Besides, he's a so-called apostle, a man-made apostle with a second-hand gospel. So Paul goes to Jerusalem to consult with the 12 apostles there for the very practical and strategic reason to take out of the hands of his opponents any basis to claim that Paul is a rogue missionary with a rogue message. He goes to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem leaders privately, the text tells us. Why privately? Well, because there's no need for this to be a, a public spectacle with a bunch of onlookers who could possibly misunderstand what this is about. It's private, but I think the hope is that with agreement, there would be public agreement and public acknowledgement. Paul hopes that it is widely known all the apostles agree with this gospel the good news that Jesus died and was raised for the forgiveness of our sins, a gift to be received by faith, not by earning it. So gospel unity is sought out. Let's not forget how important the theme of unity is to the Bible, how important unity is for the church, how important unity is to Jesus when Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, three times he prayed that his followers would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. In Ephesians 4, Paul speaks of the manifold oneness that we share in Christ. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And it was right before that that Paul encouraged to pursue oneness with each other. He said, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we could go on and on with other verses about unity and love for each other and how important this is for the church. But you get the point. It's important. The call to unity in the Bible, of course, shouldn't Discourages, uh, discourage us from forming individual local churches. It shouldn't discourage us from planting new churches. No, the biblical call for unity is not a call for there to be one worldwide church or one national church or even one city church. You don't even find that in the New Testament, so it would be naive to try to attempt that today. But... We should be looking for ways to acknowledge and celebrate gospel unity with other local churches, here and abroad. And especially within a local church, we must celebrate and confess our shared gospel unity. 
This is why when joining Desert Springs Church, you'll meet with an elder, and that elder will likely ask you, what is the gospel? Tell me what the gospel is in your own words. Tell me what I would need to know to be saved if I wasn't a Christian. And some may think that that kind of question is over-scrutinizing. Wait, there's a test? What's that about? Well, it's very practical. Are we confessing and proclaiming the same gospel or different gospels? You see, if your message to the world is along the lines of God helps those who help themselves or God in Christ can make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous or Jesus is helping me get off the weed, or something along those lines. Jesus is a pretty good teacher, and so is the Dalai Lama. If that's your gospel, your message, your confession, then we shouldn't join hands and pretend that we have the same message. But if we have the same message, oh, it doesn't have to be the exact same wording, but it has to be the same truths. If we have the same gospel, then we should make that explicit. You should make that explicit with a local church, Christian. It doesn't have to be this local church. It could be another local church. But you should make explicit, official, overt, and public that you're in with those people to confess and represent Christ together. Well, we'll come back to these ideas under the third heading in just a bit. Paul talks more about partnership uh, under that third heading, but he moves on next to talk about gospel purity. Secondly, gospel purity tested. Verses 3 to 5. The matter of circumcision is front and center in our passage. And the matter of circumcision, you should know, became a test case for the early church regarding the purity of the gospel. And let me explain the background to this thing of circumcision in the Bible. And let me just assume that you know, you know almost nothing about it and why I would be talking about circumcision or why the Bible mentions it. Well, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, and he made circumcision the sign of that covenant. So every male son born of Abraham and his offspring would be circumcised on the eighth day. And that symbolized the need for removal of the flesh. It was literally removing the flesh, representing a removal of the spiritual flesh that's needed. Of course, circumcision didn't actually remove the spiritual flesh or sin. It couldn't. And that's why Moses, so early on, was already talking about the need for circumcised hearts. It's got to get inward. It's not enough that it's outward. But the outward symbolized what was needed in the inward. As for those who were not descendants of Father Abraham, non-Jews, also called, also called Gentiles, well, they could get in on believing on the true God and worshiping him but they did have to be circumcised first, even as adults. It's in Exodus 12, 48. If a stranger, non-Israelite, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, 
Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Well, that's the way it was all through the Old Testament. And yet there was this growing emphasis, like through the Psalms, Psalm 67, Psalm 96, of the nations giving praise to God. It grows and swells in the days of the later prophets as they envision a day when the nations are pouring in to Yahweh God. And that's what we find when Jesus shows up. And there was no denying that the message of his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins was to go global. It was to be taken to the nations. He ends his earthly ministry by telling his disciples this multiple times. Matthew, Luke, John, Acts 1. He tells them, go and make disciples of all nations. And on that, among Christian among Christ confessors, there was no debate. There was no debate. You see it happening. You see it happening in the book of Acts where it really starts out in Jerusalem, mostly among Jews. That's Acts 2. But then it, it spreads, not just numerically, but it spreads geographically and ethnically. It spreads to the Samaritans in Acts 8, those who were half-Jews. And then it spreads to the non-Jews like Cornelius in Acts 10. He was a Roman centurion. And Peter preached to him and he was saved in his family. But the question arose around this time whether non-Jews like Cornelius can really and fully enter into God's acceptance and community without circumcision first. Remember, Exodus 12, 48 said they had to. Did something change with the coming of Jesus? You can imagine the concern, or you can imagine the potential question, if not controversy. Acts 11, verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You acted like there was acceptance and peace with them while they weren't circumcised. Well, Peter gives a good answer there. And he gives another answer in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. This debate came to a head at the Jerusalem Council. We read in Acts 15:1, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, Peter responds to that. I'll give you just a bit of what he said. Starting in verse 9 of Acts 15, he says, As God who is saving Gentiles, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith alone, in other words. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's not that they were unable to bear circumcision, but that represented the whole keeping of the law. He's saying, we haven't been able to accomplish the law, and you're telling them, do the law and believe on Jesus? They can't believe in the law. We didn't. They can't follow the law. We didn't follow the law all that well. 
he concludes, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. While others testify, like Paul and Barnabas, and the conclusion is finally drawn that circumcision is not required for Gentiles for them to come to Christ. They come straight in, no prerequisites. It's all level at the foot of the cross. Now, you should know that there's some debate among scholars, a debate that continues to this day, whether Galatians was written before or after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And related to that is whether our passage, Galatians 2, is actually telling the story of the Jerusalem Council. The other view is that Galatians 2 is describing a time around Acts 11, another trip to Jerusalem that Paul had. And hence, Paul then would be writing Galatians before the Jerusalem Council in that view. Well, the right conclusion isn't easily drawn, and as I said, the debate continues, and there are really good arguments for either side. I've held to both views over the years. I would say currently, I would favor the view that Galatians 2 is before the Jerusalem Council. I think the strongest reason for that view is that if Paul is trying to argue to the Galatians that circumcision is not required for salvation in Christ and the Jerusalem council has already taken place, he doesn't reference it nearly enough, it seems. It's not black and white, but it seems that way. It seems like he would speak of that decisive event and even the decree that was made with messengers being sent out to the churches. It seems like he would use that bullet in his chamber if he had it in his pocket. And he doesn't quite so much do that. But at the end of the day, it matters little. It matters little whether uh, Paul wrote to South Galatia or North Galatia, whether it was before or after the Jerusalem Council. The point we should notice is that from Acts 11 and Acts 15 and Galatians 2, regardless of the chronology, apparently this was a hotly debated topic in these years. And here's how it went for Titus. Verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. These false brothers were thus called because they professed Christ, but apparently not genuinely so, not truly so. They're surely the same people that Paul expressed concern about in Galatians 1, verse 7. Some seek to trouble you and distort the gospel. As Paul tells it, the arrival of uncircumcised Gentile Titus, one of Paul's emissaries, one of Paul's understudies, his arrival to Jerusalem brought this gospel debate to a head, and he really forms a perfect test case for gospel purity, especially in Jerusalem in these years. 
In Paul's mind, there is freedom in Christ. Notice that language of freedom. Freedom to circumcise or not circumcise. Freedom to keep Jewish customs and freedom from Jewish customs in Christ. But these false brethren sought to make Titus a, a touch point for their cause. And so notice they secretly slipped in and they spied out that freedom of Titus's lack of circumcision that they might subjugate, that they might enslave, that they might require circumcision of him. Well, Paul, and thankfully the 12 Jerusalem apostles, refused to have Titus circumcised. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's a gospel issue. Circumcision may not seem relevant to us today, especially in connection with the gospel. And that's true. There are not many today, if any, who are preaching a kind of Christ and circumcision way of salvation. But the key is the word and once again. Regardless of what comes after and, Christ and something is problematic. For them, it was Christ and circumcision. And in our day, it can be a lot of other things. Some require baptism as an ingredient necessary for our salvation, not as an outworking or an act of obedience once we're saved. Some require good works as necessary, as key ingredients for our salvation. And some might imply that you can, sure, get in on this Jesus stuff as soon as you dress like we do or vote like we do, those kind of things. The gospel, by very nature, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And to add to that gospel with anything after an and, that's a distorted gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's not good news. Or in Paul's terms here, it's freedom or slavery. Gospel and slavery. Grace alone, there's freedom. Now thirdly, let's move on to gospel partnerships. Gospel partnership affirmed, verses 6 to 9. And here Paul comes back to the issue he raised in verses 1 and 2 whether the Jerusalem apostles would affirm his message and his mission. It would sure seem so from the test case of Titus in the agreement that they shared there. But now in verses 6 to 9, Paul makes that explicit. He makes it official. All the apostles share the same gospel. The 12 apostles in Jerusalem affirmed Paul's message and his ministry. They could hear the same gospel in his words and they could see the same grace of God in his life. But their affirmation, Paul says, added nothing to me. Do you see that in verse 6? 
That means he didn't need to be reassured of the true gospel. He didn't need their affirmation to continue to be an apostle. He was clearly confident in his calling as a calling directly from Christ. He didn't need, he didn't need ratification. He didn't, didn't need certification. He didn't need any of that. They added nothing to the value of his ministry, and they didn't add anything to the content of his message. Now, Paul's not being smug when he says these kind of things. They added nothing to me. That's just the way it is. It's the very nature of his calling. To say otherwise would to discredit Jesus and his role in Paul's message and mission. And yet their affirmation and their agreement with the Apostle Paul, it wasn't unimportant, was it? That's why he's in Jerusalem. That's why he engaged them as he did. That's why he sat down before them and explained to them the gospel that he proclaims. Remember, there were rumors, no doubt, started by these false brethren that, that Paul's message wasn't in sync with the other apostles and that Paul wasn't really an apostle. Well, now it's known. Now it's established. Those are lies. The testimony of the other 12 apostles confirms they have the same message and they're in agreement on ministry. Now get what's happening here. This is cool. On the one hand, the truth of Paul's gospel message was demonstrated by his independence from anyone. That's chapter one. On the other hand, the truth of his gospel message is demonstrated by his agreement, his unity with the other apostles and their affirmation of his ministry. Paul and the 12 apostles in Jerusalem got the same gospel independently. How do you explain that if this Christianity thing is merely the telephone game or merely the well wishes of followers who were disappointed that their master was murdered? That doesn't apply to Paul. They had different experiences with Jesus, different places. They were apart for a long time. They come together. They have the same message they shake hands with the same mission. You see that right hand of fellowship in verse 9? All of this agreement is signified with that simple and beautiful gesture, the right hand of fellowship, signifying agreement and acceptance and warmth and partnership and support. Yes, they have different targets, different target audiences. Verse 9 there, Paul says that he will, of course, mostly focus on the Gentiles, not exclusively, but mostly, and Peter and the others will mostly focus on the Jews. So they won't partner up in every way. They're not going to travel together like Paul, Barnabas, and Titus will. They're certainly not the same people. They certainly don't have the same gifts, but they have the same gospel. They're in partnership together, and there is sweet agreement and fellowship and support and warmth and encouragement. This reminds me of our fellowship with those churches in the New Mexico regional chapter of the Gospel Coalition. I prayed for them just a couple of weeks ago, those 30 or so pastors that we host here in this building quarterly. 
We've been doing it for over a decade, getting together, hearing each other's prayer requests and needs and struggles, praying together, encouraging each other, thinking through theological and ministry issues together. Man, the the accumulation of relational cachet is just sweet. It's a gift of the Lord. It reminds us that we're not in this together. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. We have others. You think of how our Claris conference functions that way. Well, we used to do a Claris conference. COVID has interrupted that. But uh, usually in March, we're celebrating together as a church, a conference, and having others from other churches. About half the people in this room at a usual conference is outsiders, but they're not outsiders, they're partners. They're brothers and sisters from other churches that we are thankful to serve and encourage and support and partner with. It it is in a conference form, it is a right hand of fellowship. It's not unlike our missions endeavors in conjunction with uh, pioneers and uh, the Southern Baptist Convention It's not unlike our partnership with pastors on the reservation like Josiah just prayed for this morning. Now, without clarity about the gospel, those partnerships would just be futile. They'd just be partnerships. I mean, the world has partnerships. The world gets together over causes. Hopefully, our partnerships are more than that. Hopefully our partnerships are not just good, but eternal. Not just needed in this world, but glorifying to God and part of his eternal salvation. But the clarity of the gospel is necessary for the legitimacy of those partnerships. We have to be clear about what the gospel is and to define the gospel clearly and to delineate it firmly is not contrary to unity. People talk like this these days. Oh, don't get too specific on the gospel because we have to be about unity. Unity in what? What do we share? What are we partnering for? What are you saying to the world? I want it to be something close to what I say to the world. No, clarity and definition And delineation with the gospel is actually the basis for our unity with others. It's the pathway to unity with others. So let's not join hands naively without gospel content in our hands. And neither let us join hands reluctantly, stingily, and seldomly. Where the gospel The true gospel is affirmed. We should go out of our way to affirm it, to encourage it, to partner where we can, and to encourage and pray for those we partner with. Fourthly, gospel implications are confirmed in verse 10. Gospel implications. It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In some ways, this is part of gospel partnership, but really it's distinct and I think serves a unique purpose here. It's an implication of the gospel. It flows out of the gospel. 
By way of some background, Paul apparently had already been collecting funds for the support of the Jerusalem Christians who were struggling in poverty, likely in a time of great famine. And that is likely the reason for him to be in Jerusalem at this time, if it's Acts 11. And it's certainly a major concern of his later on. Later on, Paul's talking about other collections for the poor Jerusalem Christians who are undergoing famine. That's in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 16, pops up at the end of Romans, elsewhere. It's a major project for Paul. Of course, it was his concern. He says, it's the very thing I was eager to do, to remember the poor. Care for the poor isn't required for his salvation, but it is an outworking of, an implication of his salvation. That's how good works are to work. They are to be the overflow of our acceptance with God not prerequisites for acceptance with God. Not the basis on which we stand before God, but having standing, being stood firmly on the gospel of Christ, knowing all other ground is shifting sand. Well, what do we want to do? We want to work out this gospel. We want to live out this gospel. As we'll see in next week's passage, we want to be consistent with the gospel. That's where freedom is found. Not bondage in slavery with a gospel and fill-in-the-blank requirement. Gospel, grace alone, faith alone. That gospel breeds a glorious concern for the poor, care for the poor. Why the poor? Why is that mentioned here? Well, in some ways, it's just one of many good works that overflow in the Christian life because of the gospel. And yet there's something particular about care for the poor because it, it resembles the gospel. It embodies the gospel. It portrays the gospel. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, Christ, became, Christ who was rich became poor for your sake so that becoming poor you might become rich. He's using money analogy for the gospel. And he does that in the context of asking the Corinthians for money for the poor. You see, the gospel, the gospel with, gives, gives, gives to the needy, needy, needy. The people who experience that should be those who see it on a physical level and, and have compassion. They, they want to meet it. And how is that done at our church? Well, through the church budget. So as you give to the church, then there's, there's, there are different ways in which we care for the poor. But also, as you perhaps get involved in a ministry like the wood-cutting ministry that Josiah was praying about, that's a great way to serve the poor, even the poorest, right in our own backyard. Maybe you'll find some other way. Maybe you'll, you'll just have money set aside for meeting needs because you don't know when they're going to pop up, but, but you might see them and boom, you got it. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to go sell some some tin or aluminum, you just set some aside so that when there's need, you can meet that need. We see this happening in community groups all the time, don't we? 
In community groups, there's a need. Well, the community group rallies around it, and the need is often met. This passage, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, with its pure gospel defined and tested, with, with gospel unity and partnership celebrated, and with gospel implications like care for the poor being worked out, this passage is like a gospel river with tributaries leading to it and jutting out from it. This gospel has all the this passage has all the gospel components in exactly the proper place that we would want them in the gospel equation. Have you ever seen someone write out the gospel like a math equation? Perhaps they've shown you what the gospel is not and then what the gospel is. So the gospel is not grace plus works equals salvation. No, it is grace alone plus faith alone. That equals salvation. And then if we can use a chemistry equation here, that yields. Remember the arrow in chemistry class if you had that? I barely remember. It was probably 30 years ago. Well, it yields good works. It bears good fruit. That's the equation we want. Calvin said, we are saved by grace alone, but not the grace that is alone. God's grace transforms. It frees. It frees us to be eager to care for the poor like Paul was. It frees us, specifically in this way, it frees us from love of money. It frees us from hoarding. It frees us from selfishness. This is what the gospel shapes us to do. This gospel, it's worth defending. It's worth delineating. It's worth distinguishing. It's worth uniting around and partnering over. It's worth living out together. And that's not someone else's mail. That's for you, Christian. That's not someone else's mail. This is your gospel. These are your gospel marching orders. This is what the gospel looks like lived out. And never tire of it. And never think, I've heard all this before. Here he goes again. He's doing it again. It's, the, it's this gospel thing. He gets all worked up about the gospel. Hopefully we all agree. The Bible gets worked up about the gospel. And we'll always be worked up about the gospel by his grace. In heaven we will not cease to sing about the blood of the lamb that was shed. That is not someone else's mail. And if you're not yet a Christian, this is not someone else's mail. This gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, a gift received by grace, not by earning it, that good news, that is not someone else's mail. That is to you. You may not open the mail. You may read it and throw it away, but it is addressed to you. It's addressed to you today. I pray you'd read it. You'd open it. You'd see it. You'd see Christ. And you'd be saved. Let's pray. Oh, 
what a glorious gospel of good news that we have. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death and resurrection. May we live in light of it. May we love to think about it and love to talk about it. May we represent you well in this world, not least in our care for the lowly, the needy. That's what we were, and that's what you've done for us. You've given us all that we need and more. May it be so. May it be so for more here than came in this morning. Maybe some would have walked in not believing, but walk out believing. Perhaps this next song, as we sing it, Lord, would be used of you to communicate those truths and to give faith. May it be so for your glory. Amen. Let us stand and respond. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of
saved? How are we made right with God? Nothing good that we have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Have you come to believe that and confess that? Have you come to receive that? You receive it only as a gift. If you find yourself somewhere between unbelief and true saving faith and you're not sure where to step next, maybe you've got some questions still, let us know how we can help. We say this every week, but don't get used to it. And we're saying it for those especially who have never heard us say this at the end of the service. Come up afterwards. Come find me afterwards. Come find others up front afterwards who are here to visit with you, to help you do business with the Lord Jesus today. You can always email us, info at dscabq.com, and you can start an email dialogue with one of our pastors or set up a time to meet in person. We would love to help. Believers, let's go. Standing on this firm gospel, nothing but the blood of Jesus. May we, may we represent Christ well this week. And we go with this blessing from Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. If that's you, say amen. Amen. All right, we'll dismiss you. And with this warm weather especially, we'd encourage you to head outside to the sidewalk or parking lot and do some fellowship there. Have a great Sunday. You're dismissed.